You only need one thing to be a leader. Followers. You only (laughs) need one follower to be a leader. So anyone can be a leader and anyone can be a great leader. It's, you know, who are you inspiring? You can inspire anyone. Welcome to Someone Like You, a podcast that highlights the experiences of women, immigrants, and people of color who are building empires, creating amazing things, and changing the world. Here, we celebrate underrepresented stories and unheard voices. Dr. Naz Tajbash is an organizational psychologist and author of Learning and Development and Practice, How to Create Training Programs that Make an Impact. In this episode, we talk about defying cultural expectations, sharpening your strengths, how to be a leader, and using your core values to set boundaries. Enjoy! So let's start way at the beginning what was your childhood like? Oh, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was a great childhood. I have to say I was very fortunate and lucky. Um, my parents were amazing and I had four siblings. Um, so I had a very happy childhood. I mean, I would just call it normal. And we did a lot of trips together and spent a lot of time together. Um, My dad owned a pizza place, a small business. So uh, we always would get pizza and it was really fun. What did you learn kind of seeing your your dad grow, uh, run a business as you grew up? Did that influence you? Oh, absolutely. So one of the big things with the pizza place was that we would go there all the time and, and, you know, hang out with my dad and we wanted to be there. We wanted to go see my dad and spend time in the pizza place. And as I got older, I, I actually worked at the pizza place. So when I was 16, I would help out there mm-hmm. and I learned a lot about hospitality and customer service. I really credit a lot of my, you know, inherent nature to want to serve others just mm-hmm. by watching my dad and all the hard work. Uh, that went into it. He worked so hard. Um, I mean, he still works to this day at that pizza place and, and my younger brother helps him run, run the store and they sacrificed, my parents sacrificed a lot for us and I'm really grateful. And, you know, I learned a lot just by watching them. Wow. Now at that young age, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh yeah. So. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, That's kind of what I wanted to be as I was growing up. And then I went to, I went to university. So I went to UC Irvine and that first semester, a a tragedy happened in my family. So um, actually one of my older brothers, he passed away very suddenly. Um, So this was, this was more than 10 years ago. Um, and it was like someone just shook me in, in the sense of 
when it came to school. I remember going to school, I was going to biology class. It was the day after, you know, he had passed away. And I was sitting in a discussion group and they asked me a question about the assignment and I just started crying. (laughs) I I didn't hear anything. And I said, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't even be here today. I have to go. Yeah. So, um, after a few months, I was still going on that pre-med track. And then I realized, you know what, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. This is not my calling. Um, I had, I had followed that path because it was what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to go into healthcare and that's, that's kind of the norm culturally for for me or for what was expected of me by my environment, but it's not what I wanted to do. And so it really forced me to take a step back and think about what was it that I really wanted to do? What was the legacy I wanted to leave? And how did I want to serve others? Um, Definitely, I wanted to live a life of service in some way, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I was just doing some research. I went to a ton of different seminars. I'm I'm grateful that my school offered a lot of these types of exploration events where I could go and hear from other people. Um, So uh, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. So that was what I wanted to do. Okay. So I added on an education minor and um, I said, I'll go after psychology for my major because it'll help me understand how people think and how people make decisions uh, because my backup plan was to go into marketing and advertising. So mm-hmm. I was like, this will be a good, this will be a good backup if, if I want to pursue that path. So I did the education minor and I volunteered in a school for a little while. And what I realized was that I really loved the aspect of being able to teach and being able to help others. And when I saw, you know, when I saw the light bulb go on, that was, that was when I got my energy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what made me feel like I was, I was really helping and making a difference. But I didn't really... Uh, <laughs> find energy in being around a lot of children all day that that was not um was not something that I could see myself doing for the next 10 or so years as a career so again I went back to the drawing board and did some additional research and then I said you know what maybe I will be a therapist and I will do that so (laughs) I'm getting this psychology degree let me explore that I took an abnormal behavior class, which was absolutely fascinating, but I, I realized that I didn't want to go into those murky waters and I, I'm the type of person that takes things home with me. So I knew that that wasn't going to be healthy (laughs) for me to pursue that path. Finally. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, finally I did another, you know, Google search. I said, there's gotta be something else I can do in psychology. So I was doing a Google search. What, what are the careers in psychology? Literally that was my Google search. (laughs) And then I came across this field, industrial organizational psychology. And I said, wow, that's quite, quite a name. What does that mean? And I looked into it and basically it's the application of psychological principles in the workplace. And, um, I said, wow, this really brings my interest in my initial interest in wanting to be in marketing and, and in a business. 
but also being able to bring psychology in a way that helps employees and people in the workforce. And the sugar or the cherry on top was I could be a teacher in the workplace, in the corporate setting. So I could be a learning and development practitioner or a trainer. And that was how I could kind of get everything that sounded what I like, what it what, what I wanted. And when you kind of stumbled upon this, did that just immediately click for you? Like this has all of the pieces of what I'm looking for? Yeah, it immediately clicked for me and I wanted to do everything that I possibly could to set myself up for success. I discovered it towards the end of my third year at, at UC Irvine. So I was pretty much wrapping up my time there and I said, I got to really make this last year count. So immediately I looked into if there were any clubs on campus and, and sure enough, there was a club that was for industrial organizational psychology. Uh-huh. And so I... I went right in and said, you know what? I want to be the co-president next year. There, <laughs> let, let me interview for it. And and I was able to do that. And then at the same time, I said, you know, like with teaching, let me refer, reflect back on that experience. I had to get that experience to see if I actually liked it. And that was really valuable for me. So that summer, I went and I found an internship in human resources at a financial services firm. And so when I was at that firm, I got to do a ton of different things related to HR um, and the application of psychology at work because we were training people and creating or recruiting people and creating offer letters, kind of A to Z, the HR function, I got visibility to it. And that was when I said, yep, this is something that I can definitely uh, continue forward with. And so at that time, did you know that this was going to be this um, very long educational journey um, to getting your doctorate or was that the clear path or were you not sure? That it was, <laughs> it was pretty clear for me. I said, I want to get my PhD in organization, industrial organizational psychology. Um, I had been kind of going back and forth on whether or not I would do a master's or a PhD, mm-hmm. but the ultimate, the ultimate goal was to get the PhD because my rationale was, you know, I can even use this degree to be a teacher. So I can be a professor at some point with, with my PhD. That's a, that's a, you know, guaranteed type of a thing if I want to have that option. Sure. Now, um, what was that journey like? That's, that's a hard road, right? No, oh, yeah. Tumultuous, <laughs> I think is the word. <laughs> Um, it was a lot. So I took a year off after, after UCI and I worked, I worked at an executive search firm doing human resources and operations. Again, every, every job I had after, after that internship, every internship or job I had after my first HR internship was, I just got to keep building on my experiences, building on my experiences. That was, that was what I needed to do because um, with organizational psychology, um, it's not just you go to school and then you're ready to go out into the workforce. It's really important to have work experience because if, if we're applying what we learn with, with the field, we need to have the practical experience. So it's integrating science and practice, if you will. Sure. So I uh, took, took that year and I think I'm, when I look back on it, I'm so happy that I did it because when I started, 
the PhD program in the fall, again, I was able to tie everything that I was learning to my work experiences. And that's super important, especially if we just think about learning in general. We learn best when we can relate what we learn to our own experiences and connect the dots. So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, the first two years were were not bad in the program. They were actually really good. I loved going to class. It was very, um, it was a small class, small classes, small cohort, up to 20 people, and really built lifelong friendships and relationships that I still keep in contact with to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third year is when this thing called the dissertation <laughs> began. <laughs> And um, that was when it it started to get really really tough because um, you go from you go from going to class having a lot of structure to uh, writing doing research and that's what the dissertation is all about you're going out and doing your own research and you're narrowing down on a topic and trying to figure out what is it that I want to do and what is it that I want to research and there's not as much structure it's a little more abstract um, in terms of you know, trying to figure out what you want to do. But then once you get the momentum going, then you speed things up. So that first year, I was pretty stagnant. I went from one topic to the next and couldn't nail things down. It wasn't until the second year where I really started to gain the momentum. I finalized my topic on wanting to look at leadership and how that impacted team level engagement. So what I ended up looking at was what were the types of behaviors that could predict team engagement. So, um, and when we, when I was talking about team engagement, it's really about when team members are motivated to go beyond what's normally expected Mm -hmm. to help their team be successful. So I really was curious to know what are the types of behaviors leaders can do that helps, um, helps to do that, if you will, or is correlated to that, I should say. And what did you find? So I found uh, there's a few behaviors that, that are really helpful in increasing team engagement. I looked at about 16 in total, mm-hmm. uh, and about half of those are what uh, predict team engagement. So the ones that, that we found or that I found to um, predict team engagement are having a deliberate plan with apparent goals. So really, this is about team members feeling like there is a clear sense of direction, they have role clarity, and there's organization. Another thing is when a leader inspires their team members to do their best, and um, they do so in a way that articulates the company goals and values. So this is, um, when inspiring with vision, it's tied to the clear goals. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, the other big one was unlocking employee potential. And this is when leaders meet their employees' need for achievement, community, and equity, which um, I thought was fascinating. So it's creating a positive team climate where team members feel like they are part of a well-functioning team and able to maintain work-life balance. Um, Team members feel like their leader is showing up for them as a coach, providing recognition, building them up, and promoting com- camaraderie, encouraging collaboration, and then the, with the equity piece, treating others with respect and behaving 
fairly towards all employees. So, I mean, none of this should be surprising. It's things that we've all heard in some way. Um, it's, it's, you know, this is what you have to do, not just to be a good leader, but a good person. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that I was able to find statistical correlations with that and how those impacted team engagement was, was powerful. Absolutely. So how do you go about helping uh, teams and leaders implement some of these practices in their business uh, in the day-to-day? Yeah, so the way I do that is by offering um, learning experiences, learning solutions. So what I do is I work with leaders who are thinking about having some type of experience, a training or um, really, really a training, but I like to, I've rebranded it, if you will, as a learning experience, because I really like to think of it holistically. And um, what my specialty is, is leadership development. So um, if I know that the person that wants to do this experience with their team members really wants to build their effectiveness at inspiring others or leading with vision, then I will craft that type of experience. Um, so one example is I'll have the, the participants draw, you know, draw what your life looks like today. What, how, what, what, does, what do you look like as a leader? Draw, draw what that looks like with your team members. And so they'll draw a picture and it'll be interesting because some, sometimes the pictures will be the leader in their office sitting by themselves and then their team is sitting outside. And so I'll ask them to kind of walk me through their picture. And that's when you see, again, they're starting to have some insights. Wow. I'm, I'm over here in my corner and my team is out there. I need to, just, I need to change the setup of my office. I need to be with my team mm-hmm. and be more approachable and accessible. So we'll do that. And then another, so once that activity is over, another activity that that I find super helpful is have them draw, okay, what is your vision? What do you want? How do you want to lead as a leader? Draw what that looks like. And then this is when they create an image, a compelling vision for the future that they'll have in their office. And so it's a constant reminder of what they're striving for. And it's also a great conversation starter. I'll ask, hey, are you going to share this with your team, what you drew for your vision? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes they'll say yes. And then sometimes they'll say, you know, I'm going to leave it in my office. And if someone asks about it, then then that's when I'll talk about it. So it depends on how ready they are. But mm-hmm. it's uh, that's one of the ways in which I help leaders kind of achieve these these types of things to help them be more effective and and lead lead with purpose and and service. One of the things that um, you taught me when we first met was the uh, kind of concept around strengths and amplifying someone's strengths. Can you talk about that and how um, that can transform a work environment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'll have to credit credit this strength, uh, strength-based stuff to Marcus Buckingham. So I've, I'm an avid follower of him. Um, and he's all about this strength movement. So what it's rooted in is when you leverage your strengths or when you focus on your strengths, that's where you're already good at things and, or that's what gives you energy. And that's where you can make the most impact. Mm 
So they did a study with readers where um, they took average readers and above average readers. And they did an intervention where they wanted to see if they could improve their speed reading capabilities. So they wanted to see how many, how quickly could they read, right? So what happened was they had a training intervention and they found that those who were the average readers, they were able to go from 90 words per minute to 150 words per minute. The above average readers went from 350 words per minute to 2,900 words per minute. Wow. So <laughs> this, this is one of the foundations in which, you know, when we focus on our strengths, we can amplify our impact, our impact. Um, so that's what I like to do with the strengths approach. I, I, Marcus Buckingham says that strengths aren't things that you're good at. Things, strengths are what make you feel strong. Mm. And I love that. It's about what gives you energy and that's what you should follow. Um, and then how can you sharpen that? How can you focus and, and sharpen your edge and, and focus on those strengths so that you can win at work and win at life? I love that. So what, through all of this education, have you recognized as some of your own strengths? Yeah, I think for me, it's, I'm really, I'm strengthened by when I can help people find what is the right experience that's going to help them uh, find their strengths mm -hmm. and how they can in increase their impact. Um, I love doing uh, these strengths types of assessments and kind of debriefing, debriefing the participant on their, their results. So what stood out to you? Um, do you agree? What, what, what surprised you? And having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, or I'll do them with teams, these, these types of strength sessions. And so everyone in the team situations, everyone learns about each other's strengths and, um, that helps them to know how they can better leverage each other. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's back to your question, it's what is the right solution for, for the person I'm working with, the leader, the client. And then second is facilitating the thought and, and insights through conversation. Do these types of exercises take a perspective shift? Because as you mentioned, I think we're taught that um, one of your strengths are the things that you're just good at or predisposed to. And two, that you're supposed to put lots of energy into developing your weaknesses. So how do you kind of get people out of that mindset? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So the biggest thing is we don't want to ignore any big weaknesses. So if, if, if people are doing something that's inhibiting them from performing or it's hurting their, you know, how they're performing at work, we have to address the weakness. We don't, we don't just ignore weaknesses. That's not what the strengths-based approach is about. Mm -hmm. But um, now let's say we've addre we're addressing the weakness. That's fine. But the point is you don't focus on the weakness. A lot of times what you see is when people want to get promoted or even when we want to get better, we say, okay, what are my two opportunity areas? Or what are my weaknesses and how can I get better? It's, it's acknowledging the weaknesses, if you will, 
and and identifying a plan, but don't put 80% of the focus there. Maybe mm-hmm. put 20% on improving that and the honestly the the 80% on your strengths. So figuring out spending most of your time sharpening your strengths and disciplining yourself to express and use your strengths every day. Because when you use your strengths, you see them in action in the real world and you can determine what worked and what didn't work. And con- it's, it's literally when I say the word sharpen, you're sharpening a pencil. You're, you're sharpening your edge when you're using your strengths. So um, the advice piece, what I would say is take a step back and just Think back on the last three big projects you worked on or the last three interactions you had and think about what those people would say you did really, really well, or even what you think you did really, really well. And distill that into a few strengths that you want to continue to explore and employ every day that gives you energy, that makes you feel strong to Marcus's words Mm -hmm. and use that every day and see how you can continue to grow. And what, in your experience, is the impact of that? Because you've talked about how um, kind of not living in this area can really drain your energy. So in in your experience, now that you're kind of every day working in your strengths, hopefully, how has that impacted you? It's it's, It's a monumental shift. I mean, when we move from working on things that drain us. I mean, think about the tasks where you just would love if you got an extra day to work on it to, because that would mean you'd have an extra day to put it off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you go, you go from that to, wow, I can't wait. I, when you, you leap out of bed in the morning because you're excited about what you're going to be working on and who you're going to be working with, because you are strengthened by those things that you're able to do. And because it strengthens you, you're able to show up as your best and really add value in the ways that um, allow you to make an impact in whatever that it, that way is that you want to. Wow, that sounds hugely transformational. There's, so there's this one quote that I just want to share in that same regard that it's from Oscar Wilde. And this is something that I love to share with people. It's, my great mistake, the fault for which I can't forgive myself, is that one day I seized my obstinate pursuit of my own individuality. So again, this is that it's a journey that we're going to continue to pursue our own uniqueness and and what that looks like. I love it. I just love it. Do you, <laughs> do you experience a lot of the people that you work with having these kind of big epiphanies um, or, you know, realizing like maybe this is or isn't what I should be doing? Do I need to make a shift? Do they get clarity? You know, what is that emotional experience like? Oh, yeah. Um, it can be a really, really intense experience because some people are having the realization where the daily activities are are not are not energizing, and they're really reevaluating. You know, this isn't actually what I want to do. I need to go back to this drawing board again for my career and figure out what are the ways in which I can, um, you know, employ my strengths every day. Uh, some other people, what what I recommend as a first step is to 
talk to, if, if you're reporting to a manager, talk to your manager and share, you know, these are ways that I would really love to show up. And these are strengths that I would really love to start using here. Um, go with some ideas. I noticed that X, you know, some person is working on this one project. I know that's not part of my daily responsibilities, but I would love to be able to be a part of that so that I can, you know, test these strengths out and, and provide value. Um, so that's a good first step because a lot of people do have a very intense experience and they're kind of rethinking everything. What am I doing? And I'll say, you know, calm down. It's okay. Uh, you know, just look in front of you and look around. Where are the opportunities that you can, that you can step into right now? And then they'll, they'll, they'll immediately see, oh, wow, there are opportunities right around me. I don't need to change my entire career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can do little things. Yeah. That's and then slowly, the testing will will grow and expand. Mm -hmm. So you've um, had experiences working with, you know, huge name brand companies like Taco Bell and, and Disney, for example. You've also, um, you're, were a certified life coach. So you've done some more like kind of one-to-one, -one, you know, smaller touch type of work. Do you have a preference on the environment you like to work in and how you like to kind of impact this change? Yes, I love retreats. I love retreats where it's 15 to 20 people um, and bringing people from different companies to, to have a shared experience. So um, I'm, I'm working with someone where we're doing a one-year program and it kicks off with a retreat in Lake Arrowhead. Uh, it's a weekend retreat and it's, this whole program is about discovering um, <laughs> discovering your talents, how to build your resilience and empathy, and mm -hmm. how do you show up in the world as a leader, as an individual, so that you can live out your purpose. Um, so that's my favorite type of experience. I, I think it's also, it, again, it goes back to my, my upbringing in hospitality and service. I love these experiences that people can look back on as a, a really um, salient memory. And when they, if, if anyone's been traveling, if you've gone, if you've gone on a trip, you'll say, Oh, remember that one time I want to mm -hmm. be that. Remember that one time where, you know, I went on this thing and <laughs> that's, that's my favorite type of thing to do. That's so powerful. Now, when you were yeah. kind of describing that, it, it brought a thought to my mind. So, um, I'm not sure how to best articulate this, but, you know, leaders, um, leadership is really upheld um, to this kind of high regard. Um, but at the same time, some of the, the skills and um, kind of talents that you mentioned that make a good leader are considered soft skills and they're often devalued in like a tra traditional organization. Do you see that? Um, or And how do you reconcile that, that some of the things that make a leader great are also the skills that people don't always appreciate. Yes, this is, this has been going on for a long time where, you know, soft skills is, it's hard to get buy-in for it. Mm -hmm. What I've, what I've started doing and it's working for me is I've shifted the conversation and I don't call them soft skills. I'm calling them leadership behaviors. So mm -hmm. it's not, because with a skill, yes, you can you can develop a skill, of course, 
with a behavior, it's something that's, you know, it's day to day. It's little moments here and there. If I messed it up today, I'll get it tomorrow or I'll get it even in my next interaction. So again, it's those, those day-to-day behaviors. Am I recognizing someone when they do a great job? You know, oh, I didn't do that. Let me go back and let me remember to give them that on-the-spot feedback. And that's a behavior. Or am I, am I uh, treating everyone with respect? Did I say good morning to one person but not to another person? I need to fix that. So, you know, tomorrow morning I'm going to make it a point to say good morning to every single person and ask how they're doing. And, and so it's a, I think the shift from skills to to behaviors in terms of in terms of when it comes to the practical application has been successful for me and I think it can be helpful. Do you think that leadership is something that anyone can learn based on implementing these leadership behaviors? 100%. 150%. Everyone can be a leader. Um my so my coach, um, he, his, his name is Vance. He says something, you only need one thing to be a leader. Followers. You only <laughs> need one follower to be a leader. So anyone can be a leader and anyone can be a great leader. It's, you know, who are you inspiring? You can inspire anyone. You can inspire someone when you walk into a store and they're inspired by the way you carry yourself and they want to get to know you. So everyone can, anyone can grow to be a great leader. I love that. Are there uh, any leaders that you look up to specifically? Oh, yeah. Um, so I mentioned Vance. I look up to him. Uh, he's, he's my coach. and He's a leadership coach. Um, I really look up to Simon Sinek. I really love what he has to say about leadership. One of my favorite books is Leaders Eat Last. Um, that he wrote. And again, it's, it, there's a common theme here, right? It's about the servant leader. It's the one that's serving others. So I really gravitate towards that type of language and that type of um, leadership. I think uh, from my perception, I, there's been kind of a cultural shift to towards that style of leadership versus a very um, authoritarian kind of style. Do you see that shift? Yeah, I think... You know, I think it depends on um, the environment and the task. So, you know, if you're working on a manufacturing line, sometimes the leader has to be a little more task oriented. Mm -hmm. But overall, that doesn't mean it has to be that way when people are stepping off the off the line. You can inspire those and you can have uh, lunch with them. You can have sessions to help build their their development and, and growth. Um, but yes, I think overall, we are having this shift where, you know, we're spending more and more of our lives at work and there needs to be more. We're expecting more of our leaders where we, we want more from our leaders in terms of being able to be inspired. And I think we also want to find the ways in which we could lead others and, and ourselves to, I think it goes, it's the core of it is impact. Mm. So, so it's, what is the impact I want to leave? What is, what is the impact my leader wants to make? Am I aligned with that? Am I aligned with their vision? So it is, it is going from what you mentioned more to this, this, um, 
servant type or transformational type of leadership where it's more than just I go into work and then I leave. It's important. I love that. So uh, you just published and released your first book, which first of all, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, my, my copy actually just arrived yesterday. So I dug right in last night um, and, and started getting into it. Um, but first of all, I'm so proud of you. What Thank was you. that process like? Oh, gosh. So I actually went through a workshop. Um, that's what really helped me get this book finished. It's called Bestseller in a Weekend. Um, and so you just sit down in a weekend and you write this book and it worked for me. I got it done in a weekend and, and was able to, you know, do the publishing piece, get the cover, the editing, all that stuff. But I think if anyone wants to write a book, you can absolutely do it. Uh, the process, her process, uh, her name's Alicia that runs these workshops. It really helped me just cut through all the noise and focus on what is the message that I'm trying to get out. And so did you go into it with clarity around what you wanted to say, or did that come as a result of the process? I had some idea about what I wanted to say, um, but then the process, the process is what really helped. So I had my ideas, but I didn't have my seven steps, right? So in the book, I have a seven step formula to creating high impact trainings. I didn't have those seven steps walking into the workshop. Mm -hmm. But um, that's what helped me kind of say, okay, I need to get this, you know, refine this. There's, there is steps here, but I just have, you know, all these thoughts in my brain. Sure. <laughs> so how do you feel now that it's out there in the world? Oh, I feel great. I'm already getting feedback about people, you know, using it. And it has tools that people can use over and over again. Um, I actually teach a learning and on-the-job development class at California Baptist University every summer. And so this is one of the books I, I incorporated into the course because I wanted, you know, the students to get the firsthand experience of creating a training program. Hmm. And so far, so far, they've, you know, their responses have been super positive and, and everyone likes the fact that you can just use this as a field book. You can literally have it at your desk and go step-by-step step through the process. Yeah, that seems really, really valuable. And the other thing is I cut to the chase. I'm not one of those people that <laughs> talks a lot. Uh, my book is, you know, a little over 100 pages. I'm just, I'm really telling you, this is what you got to do. Uh, this is what you need to think about. Here's a template on how to how to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so people like that too. <laughs> That's great. No BS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've gotten your PhD. You've written a book. You're really making an impact in you know global organizations. What are some of your new goals? What's next for you? You know, it's really this, uh, this retreat program or mm -hmm. this, um, it's the Meraki experience. So that's, that's what I'm partnering with, uh, Dr. Jennifer McCusker on, you know, I've always for, you know, for the past 10 years, I've been saying, 
I really want to do retreat programs. That's what gives me energy. I love being in a different setting and helping others to be in that setting and that experience to discover who they are and what they want to do. So, you know, Dr. Dr. McCusker and I, we kind of got together and she had this great idea about wanting to do retreats. And I said, I really want to do retreats. Can I be a part of this? And so, uh, you know, there's now the Meraki experience. And Meraki in Greek, it means to put something of yourself into your work. Mm. So soul, creativity, love. And that's where, where that name came from. And the acronym is ME. So M-E. And that's very intentional as well, because we believe that you start with the self in order to um, be able to lead others. That's really beautiful. So one of the things that I feel like keeps popping up to me as you're talking about your career and how you've gone about kind of building this for yourself is really your resourcefulness and just this (laughs) go-getter kind of attitude. (laughs) I'm going to take it upon myself to find a path, to find a good fit, to kind of create my reality, to write a book, to create uh, these experiences. Is that something that is just ingrained in you? Does it come naturally? Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's if I want to make something happen, I'm, I have to rely on myself. I have to have that kind of self-determination, that self-efficacy to see it through. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in my career, it was, you know, I would say yes to everything because I wanted to get the experience. I said, yes, I'll help you with this. Yes, I'll help you with that. I just want to get experience and I want to help and serve you in the, in the way that I can. Now that I've been able to get a lot of experiences and and really uncover what it is that gives me energy, it's now shifted to, you know, what what is it that you need help with? And am I the person that can help you? And that's where I'm leading with. That's how I'm leading now. And if I don't, if I can't help the person, I will certainly almost all the time have someone that they can talk to. But yeah, it's always been, I get, I get to not I have to, I get to create my, my reality mm-hmm. and, and what I want out of my life. And, and that's what I try to live by. I love that. As far as um, kind of that saying yes to everything, and I know you're an extremely generous person with your time, has uh, it been important for you to set boundaries and kind of create those systems for yourself where you say, now I'm in a place to focus on the things that do energize me? Absolutely. Um, I'm still learning this, so it's a journey for me. (laughs) Um, But I've definitely gotten better at it. I am very, I'm much more selective. So like I said earlier in my career, where I would say yes to everything, I, I won't do that. I don't do that now. It's more um, hearing about, you know, what's the project or what is it that we're talking about here? What do we want to achieve? And really what's become my, my decision maker, whether or not I say yes or no, is, is it going to give me energy and is it aligned with my, my values? So mm-hmm. if it doesn't meet those criteria, then I respectfully decline because I do have to create the boundaries. I mean, even to this day, like I told you, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. I'm working on the, on some weekends and I really want to 
live a life where I can be fully present and enjoy every moment. And so I'm, I'm doing it right now and I'm constantly learning to get better at it. Let's just say that. (laughs) Of course, as we all are. Um, You talked about your values, which is something, you know, very true to my heart and um, living through your values um, and certainly in your business and your career. What are some of your personal values? Yes, it's learning, service, and family. I love that you just know them just like that. That's great. (laughs) I love it. You got to know them. If you don't know them, then how are you going to make decisions? Um, Mm -hmm. And and values can change over time. So so those are my my focuses right now. Um, They might change in a few months. But we have to know we have to know what our values are because that's our guiding compass. Um, we're gonna if if you're on a ship, you know if a ship goes a couple couple degrees the wrong way, it ends up in a completely different destination. We need those values to be our compass and steer us towards where we're trying to go. I love that you said that because I, I think the the missing piece for so many people so many companies with values is that they just like sit on a wall or they write them down on a piece of paper and never look at them and they don't use them as kind of part of a framework for decision making um for judgment calls every single day uh and that's really the power is putting them into practice and using them as a guideline for your life absolutely if you have when you have values again it it cuts through all the noise and lets you see what the priorities are. And that's your, that's your decision-making framework right there. Mm -hmm. So another thing that you kind of, you talked about one of your values is family. And of course you also talked about, um, you know, your culture and uh, initially this kind of pressure culturally to be a pediatrician. How do you think that uh, has worked out for you? Do you feel like um, you've made people proud, like they're accepting of where you've, uh, where your career has taken you, where your life has taken you so far. Yeah. So <laughs> it's so funny because even the, the cultural stuff, it's like, I was doing it to myself. It wasn't really my, <laughs> it wasn't really forced upon me to be a pediatrician. It was it was my interpretation of cultural values that I then perceived to be, this is what I need to do. Um, I, I mean, my parents are super proud of me. My family is really proud of me, everybody. And it was just, you know, if I could go back, I wish what what I would have done is not have, you know, thought that, put those perceptions like this. I, I created those perceptions. Mm-hmm. If I had just enjoyed, you know, things the way they are and not tried to um, make meaning out of things that didn't exist um, and ruminating, like I would have saved myself so much time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate. Um, we do it to ourselves. We, we, it's, I don't get, I forget what the actual quote is, but it's, we create our own problems or something like that with our thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, kind of on that note, you know, having this internalized sense of pressure or expectations, 
Um, did you ever feel that or maybe even a sense of limitations um, being a woman and being a high achiever? Was that something that ever even crossed your mind? Or, you know, was it just kind of on the back burner or not in your head at all? No, I mean, it's definitely always on my mind. Um, it's something I'm always aware of. And um, again, the back to the, you know, in my head piece earlier in my career, you know, I was hyper aware of I'm young and I'm a woman. Are people going to say, who does this little girl think she is trying to tell me what to do? And I spent a lot of time um, worrying about that. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, I don't know what created the shift, but I was like, you know what? I do know what I'm talking about. And I'm not just going to let, let myself get in my own way. Mm-hmm. So yes, of course, it's, it's something that I'm always aware of even, even now, but, um, I always try to remind myself what is in my control because the last thing I ever want to do for the rest of my life is get in my own way. I'm going to do whatever is is in my control to do the best I can and then uh, leave the rest up to what's going to happen out in the in the environment, if you will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. I, uh, a few more questions. One thing um, I know about you uh, is you have a lot of creative interests and passions. Um are those some, some of the things that keep you inspired and keep you going? Like what role does this creativity play in your life? It plays a huge role. I, I am. So I love to be creative and have my mind wander and just do fun things, do, you know, go to a museum or uh, analyze the movie. I am notorious for, you know, I try to find the meaning behind the meaning behind the meaning. <laughs> That's fun for me. Um, <laughs> my poor fiance, he, he has to put up with me, like explaining all my theories about things. <laughs> but he secretly loves it. Um, <laughs> um, it's a huge source of energy. I love, to, even when I see cool products, I'm inspired by them and I'll say, oh, I could take a piece of that and maybe incorporate it into whatever I'm working on. So it plays a huge role. Um, I'm always just, aware of my surroundings and trying to find inspiration everywhere. So I love people like you who are super creative. You actually can show the creative side. I don't have the technical, you know, graphic artist type of abilities, but I can, I certainly appreciate it and love it when I can see it in others because it still inspires me. Thank you. (laughs) But you know, I want to key in on that because it's something that I'm personally passionate about is that um, so many people don't think of themselves as creative if they don't have a traditional, you know, fine arts skill set. And you mm. definitely recognize that creativity is maybe correlated, but not necessarily limited to that. It's a way of thinking, a way of being. And do you see that in your work? Do you kind of bring that out in people? Like what, what's your view of creativity and, you know, the everyday person? Yeah, I I think everyone can be creative. Um, I, I I've worked in environments where we, you know, I'm working on a project and it's like let's do it the way we've always done it, or this is how we did a similar program in the past. Let's copy and paste it. And I 
I'm the one that always says, well, what if we did it this way? Or what if we tried this kind of framework? And then when just by offering that up, I noticed that it, it's like creativity begets creativity. So when you open the conversation, people will become more open to it. And then they'll start having their own ideas. And it's just, how do you look, you know, I, I talked about how you, earlier you're supposed to look up and around and stuff like that. When, when you're just focused on one piece and then when I'll ask the question, but what if we considered this, they almost look up and, and now it's, it's like, wow, okay, I can, I can see all these other different possibilities. So, um, yeah, when, when working with that, it's, it's important to ask questions to see how open they are to going into that space um, and just go with it, have fun with it. I actually, actually also facilitate divergent thinking workshops with teams that, you know, they do want to be more creative. So I have a, cert, a one day kind of experience where I will facilitate that for teams if they are really having a hard time solving a problem. In the morning, we'll go to a museum and be inspired by the art. And then the second half of the day, we will do a working session specifically on trying to solve the problem. That is so cool. That's yeah. Awesome. All yeah. right. We are going to finish up with a little lightning round. Oh, so I'm going to ask you uh, five questions and I just want you to answer with the thir first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What scares you? Uh, loneliness. What are you most proud of? Love. When are you at your best? When I'm with people that I love. How do you define success? Fulfillment. How do you want to be remembered? Legacy. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories, knowledge, insights, amazing thoughts with us. I know this will be really powerful um, and a great learning experience for so many people, uh, as well as just getting to learn more about you and how you became the amazing woman that you are. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for more to come or visit LizMarieStrategy.com for more resources, stories, and insights for creatives and entrepreneurs.